This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and sex that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. January 1947. The opulent Flamingo Hotel and Casino had been open less than a month, but was already the talk of Las Vegas. The casino created a new standard of luxury for Sin City. The carpeting was plush. The walls were upholstered in green leather. Even the dealers wore tuxedos. The proud owner and manager, 40-year-old Benjamin Siegel, bounced around the casino floor, charming the guests with his Hollywood good looks and sharp suit. And on this January night, he decided to step in for one of the blackjack dealers. The players were cheered as Ben laid out the next hand. But the mood soured quickly when one of the players referred to Ben as Bugsy Siegel. Bugsy. Ben hated that nickname. It was a disrespectful reminder of his street gang origins, a past he didn't want publicized. His lip curled into a snarl as he returned the greeting, saying... I'm pleased to meet you, too. Goodbye. The obtuse player couldn't take a hint. He retorted, I ain't going nowhere till I make up my mind to leave. Ben smiled. Then he nodded to the nearby security guards and silently stepped away. The brawny guards lifted the offending player from his seat, carried him off the casino floor, and threw him onto Las Vegas Boulevard. That player was no longer welcome at the Flamingo, and his punishment had the effect Ben was looking for. Word spread quickly. Never call him Bugsy. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard, and this is Kingpins, a ParCast original. 
Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Kingpins in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Today, we begin our dive into stone-cold gangster Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. Ben was best known for founding the Flamingo Hotel and Casino. When the Flamingo opened, it brought Las Vegas onto the national stage as a glitzy pop culture tastemaker and high-end debaucherous playground. This week, we'll explore Ben's far less glamorous start on the grimy streets of New York in the 1920s. He built his fortune inside the growing organized crime network in New York, fostering a reputation as a sought-after gun-for-hire and bootlegger. Next week, we'll follow Ben out into the Nevada desert as he opens the Flamingo, a move that would change Sin City forever. In the summer of 1946, Ben Siegel was a 40-year-old handsome knockout in a silk suit. His blue eyes popped underneath the brim of a matching hat. He was dead set on finishing construction on his dream hotel and casino, the Flamingo. But in the middle of the 1940s, the U.S. was experiencing a major shortage of building materials because of a boom in housing construction. As World War II veterans flooded back into the country, many of them with foreign brides, it became apparent that there weren't enough places for them to live. The high demand for construction materials prioritized residential over commercial. That meant raw materials like concrete, wood, copper, and steel were incredibly hard to come by for a project like the Flamingo. So Ben bought a plane. He instructed Robert Rupert, a World War II fighter pilot in his employ, to fly the plane all over the country looking for construction materials. He wanted them before anyone else could get their hands on them. Rupert protested. He knew no matter how fast he arrived at a supplier, he wouldn't be able to get his hands on materials. They simply weren't available. But Ben wasn't done yet. Ben thumped a suitcase onto his desk. He unsnapped it and revealed stacks of cash inside, $100,000, which Rupert should use to bribe suppliers. Rupert hesitated. Would this really work? He knew he couldn't say no. Not after Ben had bought him his first plane. Rupert looked back to his smiling boss and nodded. The pile of cash worked like a charm. While the rest of the country struggled to find enough materials to build badly needed housing, Ben Siegel's contractors had all the copper and steel they needed for the Flamingo. Ben Siegel knew how to flex to get things done, and he knew how to do it in style. 
but with the materials in hand, he still had another obstacle to hurdle. Ben wanted his oasis to go up fast. However, that required getting around construction and licensing regulations. So he turned to his closest government ally, the portly senior Nevada senator, Pat McCarran. Ben bragged that he got very good cooperation from McCarran during the Flamingo's construction in exchange for some bribes. When a government agency withheld authorization for the Flamingo's construction in August 1946, Ben said McCarran was going to pound the table with his fists to make it clear that the state of Nevada wanted the hotel constructed. But Ben's best asset wasn't the money he slapped on the table for McCarran or the violent reputation that followed him from New York. Ben's best asset was men like Rupert, people he could legitimately trust. Ben couldn't buy trust. Trust can only be built over time and over many shared illegal ventures. His most trusted allies on the Flamingo Project had been in business with him since the beginning of his criminal career, Mo Sedway and Meyer Lansky. Ben first teamed up with Mo Sedway when they were running a protection racket on the streets of Manhattan. By 1946, Sedway was a balding 52-year-old Jewish gangster who ran the El Cortez, a Vegas casino owned by Ben Siegel. Sedway was Ben's man on the ground in the desert. It was Sedway who first got his foot in the door of the Flamingo when it was just an empty lot. He bailed out the property's first owner after his gambling debts grew unmanageable, and when the time was right, he brought Ben onto the project. Sedway was also on the board of directors of the Nevada Project Corporation, the company Ben founded to funnel cash into the Flamingo Project. As a member of the board, Sedway tracked the company's spending and stood to take a part of the profit when the Flamingo opened. Another stockholder on the Nevada Project and primary investor in the Flamingo was Meyer Lansky. Ben and Lansky were more than just business associates. They were brothers. Their relationship went all the way back to the mean streets of New York City, a time when every immigrant coming from Europe passed through Ellis Island and when the first generation of gangsters controlled the underworld. Benjamin Siegel was born on February 28, 1906, and grew up in New York's Lower East Side. He was the second of five children born to his Jewish immigrant parents, Max and Jenny Siegel. The Siegels came to New York in 1903. They hailed from Galicia, a province in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. At the time, about 5,000 people in the area perished from starvation or malnutrition every year. The Siegels knew that staying in Austria-Hungary meant risking death. The conditions in New York were a little better, but not by much. Max was a machine operator in a pants factory. He worked 18 hours a day and brought home an average of $530 a year. Like many immigrants living in New York, money was always an issue. Everyone worked in order to survive, even if surviving meant living in a tiny, mold-ridden apartment without a private toilet. By the time Ben was 11, he had dropped out of school and worked a steady job with the United States Trucking Company. But as he was driving up and down the streets, he realized there was a quicker method of making money. 
When Ben was growing up, street gangs were practically mandatory for boys. Since 1850, gangs had flourished, along with the influx of immigrants from different ethnic groups. On the Lower East Side, there were Italian gangs, Irish gangs, and Jewish gangs. Ben, of course, enlisted in a Jewish gang. A former gang member from Ben's time reminisced about the streets of New York. The gang was romance, adventure, had the zest of banditry, the thrill of camp life, and the lure of hero worship. The gang gave young Ben a sense of pride, power, and purpose. The warfare between the groups taught him that success depended on being harder, crueler, and smarter than everyone else. Ben took to it naturally. He and his fellow members served as protectors of their district against the Irish and the Italians. He quickly built a reputation as a fearless street brawler. But the primary draw for Ben was the fast money. Around 1920, when Ben was just in his early teens, he and two other boys entered a loan office not far from their neighborhood. Having already cased the place, they knew the loan officers kept bags of change easily accessible on their desks as they serviced customers. Ben and his conspirators snatched the coin bags and darted back out the doors onto the street, scattering in every direction. Ben recalled fondly, I had to run like hell for about 10 blocks, carrying two bags full of small change before the guy chasing us ran out of breath and quit. It might have been better if they'd caught me because after that, I was game for anything. Ben was hooked. Though he continued to work a variety of jobs, it was crime that became his driving force. Crime brought him money, respect, travel, women, and his best friends including his lifelong friend, Meyer Lansky. Their first meeting has become the stuff of legend, and there are several different versions of the story circulating in gangland lore. What follows is the version Lansky has told. Around 1920, a group of local hoodlums and drunks were in the streets playing a game of craps. Ben and Lansky were among the participants. The stakes were high, and that meant everyone in attendance was on a hair trigger. At one point, someone accused another of unfair play. That accusation was all it took for weapons to be drawn, knives, iron bars, and even guns. In a few seconds, the craps game escalated into an all-out brawl. The police arrived within minutes. Lansky was making his exit when he noticed Ben fighting with another boy over a revolver. Lansky knew that only an idiot, a schlamazel, would shoot with the cops in sight. Instead of running, Lansky stopped and pulled Ben out of the fray. He told him, you're crazy, drop the gun and run. As the cops inched closer and closer, they knew they were running out of time. Ben was torn. Did he stay and fight for the gun? or give up and save his own skin. Up next, Ben and Lansky forge a friendship and form their own gang. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Benjamin Siegel grew up on the mean streets of New York City. He joined his first street gang when he was a teenager. Around 1920, he was in the midst of playing craps when a street brawl broke out. As he was fighting over a revolver with another man, he was suddenly stopped by another young Jewish hood, Meyer Lansky. Lansky tried to convince Ben to leave the gun and run. The cops were right around the corner, and if he stayed, he risked being arrested. Under most circumstances, Ben would clobber any stranger who stood in the way of him getting what he wanted. But something in Lansky's steady, decisive approach made Ben trust him. He let the gun go, and the two fled from the cops just in the nick of time. As they ran together, a lifelong bond was forged. Ben and Lansky's partnership would take them far but the initial thing it generated was the first formalized gang in their neighborhood. While there were several informal street gangs, Lansky decided a more organized group was needed to better protect themselves and their turf from rival gangs. Ben was the first person Lansky recruited. Lansky immediately recognized that Ben's fast and fearless performance in the Cramps game street brawl set him apart from the other kids. As Lansky remembered, When we were in a fight, Benny would never hesitate. He was the first to start punching and shooting. Ben's violent streak was well known around the neighborhood. Lansky recalled that everyone said he was crazy as a bedbug. And that's how Ben's nickname, Bugsy, was born. Although Ben would hate the nickname later in life, as a teenager, he readily accepted it. The moniker was an indication of his growing notoriety on the streets of New York. Sometime in 1921, when Ben was only 15, he and Lansky created the Bugs and Meyer mob. The Bugs and Meyer mob got their start in petty robberies and protecting street vendors from vandalism. Of course, if any vendors refused to pay for protection, they would find their cart overturned, lit on fire, or even face a physical attack. A favorite method was to smack the stubborn vendors with iron pipes concealed inside newspapers. The gleeful brutes call this effective coercion schlamming. But soon the gang latched onto a bigger money-making scheme that was occupying criminals all over the nation, bootlegging. In October 1919, Congress passed the Volstead Act which prohibited the manufacture, sale, and distribution of intoxicating liquors. Almost immediately, gangs along the East Coast sought out ways to get the people what they wanted. By the time the Bugs and Meyer mob got involved in bootlegging a few years later, the sale of illegal alcohol had reached more than $3 billion a year. That's more than $45 billion today. The opportunities were endless, and they were lucrative. With Ben's ruthless habits and Lansky's strategy, the Bugs and Meyer mob was soon in high demand. The gang fulfilled contracts for larger criminal syndicates, providing transportation and protection for shipments of illegal liquor. 
Lansky opened a garage on Cannon Street on the Lower East Side, where they stored trucks on their way from the New York docks to other cities up and down the East Coast. It was during these bootlegging days that Ben met another lifelong ally, Mo Sedway. Sedway joined the Bugs and Meyer mob in 1921 at around age 27. Even though Sedway was 12 years older than Ben, he respected Ben enough to let the young man call the shots. It would stay that way the rest of their lives. Bootlegging also brought Frank Costello into Ben's life. Costello was already a well-established bootlegger, but he often requested Ben specifically to guard his shipments. He knew Ben was as tough as they come. And on October 29th, 1924, he was proven right. On that cold October night, 18-year-old Ben rode shotgun on a delivery run, transporting a truck full of Costello's liquor. As the truck approached a wooded area, the headlights illuminated a parked car blocking the road. Ben immediately signaled the driver to stop. He knew what a trap looked like, having said a few himself. Ben grabbed his Tommy gun and slowly approached the car. The driver was terrified, but Ben was steely-eyed. He pointed his gun at the dark woods and started shooting. Within seconds, bullets fired back at him from the woods. A firefight broke out. Some of the robbers descended from the woods and used the parked car for cover. Ben rushed back to the truck and shot a flare gun into the air, hoping that Costello or one of his guys would see that they were in trouble. In the light of the flare, Ben saw one of the robbers approaching him from behind a tree. He whipped up his gun and sawed him in half. As the Tommy gun continued to spit rounds, Ben finally heard the sound of an approaching car. He turned around and relief washed over him. Help was finally here. But as the car got closer, his smile faded. It wasn't reinforcement, it was more robbers. Now, bullets were raining down on him from three sides. Ben rushed the approaching car, finger pressed down hard on the trigger of his Tommy gun, screaming like a madman. He took down two of the gunmen, including the driver. Then he flung open the door and threw the driver's body to the ground. It's unclear if anyone else was still alive in the vehicle at this point, but if they were, they must have surrendered because Ben got into the driver's seat and rammed the car into the other vehicle that was blocking the road. The rest of the robbers retreated into the woods. When Costello's men arrived to help, they found teenage Ben with a gun pointed at four scared men and Costello's liquor completely intact. Ben had proven that he was worth more than four men put together. The Bugs and Meyer mob saw continued success throughout the 1920s. They expanded their operations into loan sharking, labor racketeering, strike breaking, and even murder. They also pulled off a couple of liquor robberies themselves. In the mid-20s, the Bugs and Meyer mob teamed up with Lucky Luciano, a powerful Italian gangster. Eventually, they formally merged forces, creating one of the first multi-ethnic crime organizations in the city. 
They call their group the National Crime Syndicate. By 1926, 20-year-old Ben was wealthier than he ever could have imagined, especially after growing up in a grimy Lower East Side apartment. He started wearing swanky, custom-tailored suits and became a regular at glitzy, expensive nightclubs. Ben had grown into his good looks, and he enjoyed the attention he got from women. At the end of the night at the club, he got accustomed to bringing ladies back to his luxurious suite at the Waldorf Astoria. But not every woman was receptive to Ben's charms. In 1926, a woman turned Ben down at a speakeasy. Ben didn't appreciate the snub, and he sexually assaulted her. The woman pressed charges, and Ben was arrested. Soon after Ben was hauled into a jail cell, Lansky paid that woman a visit. We don't know if Lansky threatened her, hurt her, or paid her off. Perhaps it was a combination of all three. Whatever he did, it was effective. The woman dropped the charges, and Ben walked free. Ben was never able to contain his violent habits to just business. But the violence was good for business, and it apparently didn't hurt his personal life. On January 28, 1929, at just 22, Ben married Estelle Krakauer, his school day sweetheart. In May of that year, Ben and Esta went to Atlantic City on their honeymoon. But there were several other attendees on the romantic vacation. Ben used his honeymoon as a front for a meeting of all the major players in organized crime, from New York to New Orleans to Boston to Kansas. Some of the A-listers included Enoch Nucky Johnson, Meyer Lansky, Al Capone, Dutch Schultz, and, of course, Lucky Luciano. Some of the oldest, most powerful crime bosses, scornfully referred to as Mustache Pete's, were notably not invited. This meeting was for young and hungry gangsters only because they were taking over. Two years after that honeymoon meeting, Ben found himself in the midst of the Costella Marisi War. The streets of New York ran red with blood as the next generation of gangsters killed off the old generation. By fall of 1931, the mustache Pete's had all either ceded power or were dead. When the war ended, Lucky Luciano went on to restructure organized crime, forming the commission to run things from the top. As a thank you to the Bugs and Meyer mob for their help in assassinating the mustache Pete's, Ben was able to select his own path within this new mafia. Ben stuck with enforcement, and he called this new department Murder, Inc., Ben recruited the most experienced killers in all of organized crime to join Murder, Inc., including former Bugsy and Meyer mob member Mo Sedway. Together, they were an efficient, quiet, and dependable killing machine. The group of contract killers responded to the call of mob bosses all over the East Coast and eventually across the country. Murder, Inc. worked out of a cozy candy shop in Brooklyn called Midnight Rose, complete with a soda counter and cafe. The whole operation was run by an elderly woman named Mrs. Rosie Gold. Rosie Gold looked like a harmless grandmother. 
but behind the scenes, she took part in loan sharking, fraud, and bail bonds. In less than 12 months, over $400,000, about $5.8 million today, were deposited and withdrawn from her personal checking account. The killers hung out in the cafe regularly. They would play cards and drink Mrs. Gold's famous malted milkshakes. That is, until one of the payphones at the back of the cafe rang. Then it was time to get to work. By Ben's design, no hitman ever had any emotional attachment to their target, or even knew why the target had been selected for death. The hitman only needed to know where to point the gun. The system ran flawlessly. But even with Ben's careful planning and his connections with the likes of Luciano and Costello, that didn't mean he was immune to danger. If anything, Ben's position as the head of a group of contract killers put an even bigger spotlight on him. In November 1934, Ben and Lansky were in their office strategizing when Ben noticed movement in the fireplace out of the corner of his eye. A couple of sticks of lit dynamite were being lowered down the chimney. Lansky gaped, but Ben moved quickly. He grabbed a pair of scissors, cut the bomb off the string, and threw it out the window. The bomb exploded just outside the building, blowing up part of the office wall. Ben and Lansky were knocked flat by the debris. Both had had plenty of brushes with death, but no one had ever tried to blow them to bits. Someone was seriously after them. But who? Up next, Ben seeks out the men who tried to kill him and his partner. Now, back to the story. In November 1934, 28-year-old Benjamin Siegel saved himself and his friend Meyer Lansky from a bomb being lowered into their office chimney. He did so with barely any time to spare. The bomb detonated right outside the window of their office. Both men suffered scrapes and bruises. Ben had a particularly worrisome head injury, and he decided to check into the hospital. It's quite possible that Ben's injuries did warrant an inpatient hospital stay, but it's more likely that Ben played up the severity of his injury because he had another scheme in mind. During his stay, Ben used his underworld connections to find out who was responsible for the bombing. He wasn't all too surprised to learn that the would-be assassins were the Fabrizio brothers. The Fabrizios worked for Waxy Gordon, a bootlegger headquartered in Atlantic City. Ben and Lansky had recently intercepted one of Gordon's shipments and killed three of his men. Gordon wanted revenge, so he arranged for the Fabrizio brothers to deliver the dynamite to Ben and Lansky. And now that the attempt had failed, the brothers were lying low at their parents' house. Armed with this knowledge, Ben formulated a plan. He surreptitiously slipped out of his hospital room and into the night, taking care not to alert any doctors or nurses of his absence. Out on the street, Ben met up with two friends waiting for him. Under the cover of darkness, they traveled across town to the Fabrizio brothers' parents' home. But their mama and papa couldn't protect them. 
A few bullets later, Ben had his revenge. In a jiffy, Ben was back in his hospital bed. When police investigated the murder, they immediately suspected Ben. But they were forced to cross Ben off the list when they realized he had an airtight alibi. Numerous hospital staff confirmed that Ben had been recovering in his hospital bed all night long. Right around this time in the early 1930s, Ben began to spend less time managing Murder, Inc. and more time traveling around the country doing business for the syndicate, most of the time in Los Angeles. Soon, he was spending as much time on the West Coast as he did on the East. As a result, he got very familiar with the head honcho in L.A., known as the Los Angeles Black Hander, Jack Dragna. Jack Dragna had been involved in bootlegging back in the 1920s, supplementing his income with extortion wherever possible. But what really broke Los Angeles wide open for Dragna was expanding the syndicate's stake in the gambling business. Dragna was effective, but he was a blunt instrument. Fellow L.A. player Mickey Cohen described Dragna as very powerful and very well-respected, but kind of lackadaisical. The more time Ben spent in Los Angeles with Dragna, the more he noticed the ways Dragna's operations could be improved. Dragna had found new revenue streams in gambling and prostitution, but he neglected to form a relationship with local law enforcement or leverage politicians to the syndicate's advantage. This left them vulnerable to prosecution. Most importantly, Dragna wasn't organized. All the criminal players in his orbit were independent, competing against each other when they could have been making money together. Dragna was running a loose ship, and Ben was the one to tighten it up. In 1937, Ben relocated to Los Angeles full-time, with the apparent blessing of his associates in New York. While their new mansion was being constructed, Ben put his wife Esta and their two young daughters, four-year-old Millicent and two-year-old Barbara, in a rented house in Beverly Hills. Ben oversaw every step of construction. He made sure that it not only looked good, but also included built-in safes, secret closets, and hiding spaces big enough for a grown man. He was so proud, he showed off the half-built house to friends at all hours, lighting matches to illuminate the late-night tours. The more time Ben spent in Los Angeles, the more he liked it. California offered nonstop beauty, beautiful landscapes, beautiful weather, and beautiful people. Ben had spent his entire life building a career that gained him the respect of people he admired. In New York, those people were gun-toting professional tough guys. But here in Los Angeles, Ben saw a new frontier that he desperately wanted to be part of. Hollywood. The gorgeous celebrities that populated La La Land fascinated Ben. He was attracted to their carefree lifestyle, driven by fashion, wealth, dope, and booze. Ben's tendency toward vanity and flash made him a natural fit for the Hollywood crowd. He already wore the latest fashions, but the move to the West Coast loosened up his color palette and his collar. Any mention of him in the press, positive or negative, always noted his sartorial splendor. Ben wasn't just obsessive about his clothes, 
He was also dedicated to fitness. He was a member of several country and athletic clubs, and he frequented the Hollywood YMCA. Despite his unsavory connections and history in New York, Ben was quickly accepted in Hollywood. As one contemporary recalled, there was a certain glamour attached to a real mobster. Everybody knew that this was a very dangerous character, but he was so charming and so pleasant to know, you just didn't bother with that. Ben began supplementing his criminal network with movie contacts. He frequented Hollywood parties and movie premieres, counting performers like Frank Sinatra, Cary Grant, Clark Gable, and Gene Harlow as his friends. He even spent time on film sets, observing actor George Raft, who had his big break back in 1932 with the gangster film Scarface. Raft and Ben built a lasting friendship. Over the course of their years together, Raft suspected that Ben's attraction to sound stages revealed a secret aspiration. Raft told his biographers, I had a hunch that, like a lot of people, he was a frustrated actor and secretly wanted a movie career. Raft may have been right, but Ben had other business on the set besides fantasizing about his acting career. He saw movies as a ripe hunting ground for a favorite mob money scheme, labor racketeering. Ben noticed that the extras were not unionized. At a time without digital effects, background actors were essential to film and not easily replaced. Ben offered the actors protection and managerial services in exchange for a percentage of their earnings. Of course, Ben played both sides. He approached the studios next, offering preferential contract terms. But once the contracts were settled, he'd expect a fee for his services. If studios failed to cough up whatever amount Ben demanded, he would call on his actors to strike. An extras strike could stop production, and the studio would watch their bills rack up while the crew sat idle. They usually opted to give Ben his cut. Ben didn't just stop at the studios. He hit up the stars for payoffs to keep their pictures on schedule as well. Ben's accounts were stacked with the names of high-profile actors who had loaned Ben amounts up to five figures. Ben's approach was famously casual. After building a rapport with an actor over the course of a few interactions, Ben would take out a notebook and tell them, I'll be putting you down for $10,000 for the extras. When the actor balked, Ben responded, I don't think you understand. Take your new picture, for instance. Everything's ready to go. But what happens if the extras go out on strike? That means the stagehands go out on strike too, because they're all union. So there goes your picture. The actors got the hint. Although the syndicate was pleased to take part in Ben's new revenue stream, they made sure Ben didn't lose sight of his primary occupation, expanding and streamlining the sprawling gambling racket Dragna had haphazardly built. Dragna wasn't pleased to be upstaged, but he didn't have much of a choice. It was either work with Ben or face the wrath of the syndicate. Plus, Ben had a way of asserting his dominance. In the summer of 1937, Ben did a fresh sweep of all the gambling halls and bookies in the city. Most of them knew what to do when Ben pressured them, fork over the cash. 
but one man tried standing up to the new mobster in town. Les Bruneman owned a few different gambling facilities in the Redondo Beach neighborhood south of Los Angeles. When Ben showed up to collect his cut of Les's business, Les made the fatal mistake of telling Ben to go stuff it. In October 1937, gunmen stormed a small cafe where Lou was eating. Lou didn't live to see Halloween. After Ben took control of the existing gambling facilities, he turned his sights to emerging gaming enterprises. In the spring of 1938, he made his most astute investment yet, the great gambling vessel, the SS Rex. Since the mid-1920s, gambling boats had been anchored about three miles off the coast of California, just outside the jurisdiction of state law. The SS Rex blew them all out of the water. Open 24 hours a day, the SS Rex featured two decks of gambling paradise, over 100 slot machines, a generous bingo parlor, eight craps tables, and six roulette stations. Ben knew what he was doing. In the first half of 1939, the SS Rex saw a net profit of $236,940. Today, that's about $4.4 million. By the end of the 1930s, Ben felt like his life had reached new heights. He was bringing in more money than ever for himself and the syndicate. He had a beautiful family and rubbed shoulders with Hollywood stars. When he was in New York, Ben never dreamed that his life could get better than it already was with the respect and power he got from the syndicate. But in Los Angeles, he experienced a new high. For the first time, he felt the draw of the straight life. But Ben wasn't straight. Far from it. In August of 1940, Ben awoke to the sound of car doors slamming on the street below. When he looked out the window, he saw armed men running across his lawn. This clearly wasn't a social call. His mind raced. Had he done something to upset the New York syndicate? Maybe he'd grown too big too fast. Or perhaps Dragna's resentment was finally boiling over and he was here to retake control of the Southland. Ben's butler opened the door. There were several police officers on the stoop. They were looking for Benjamin Siegel. They had a warrant for his arrest for murder. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week to find out how Ben goes from contract killing to answering the call of square living with a roulette wheel and an elegant pink bird. You can find all episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner. 
with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Travis Clark, and Joel Stein. This episode of Kingpins was written by Hannah McIntosh, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett. <laughs>